0: This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the A.M., recorded in front of a
1: live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. So
0: hi everyone and welcome to the Australian Museum. My name is Olivia Willis, I'm a health journalist at the ABC and I'm delighted to be here with you this afternoon for this Eureka Talk which is looking at the rise of zoonotic diseases. Um, I'd like to first begin with an acknowledgement of country. Here at the Australian Museum we are on Gadigal land, surrounded by the waterways of the Gadigal people. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay respects to Gadigal elders. This is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. Very soon I'm going to introduce our uh, brilliant panellists but before I do there's just a couple of quick housekeeping things I want to flag. Firstly today's session is being recorded, the audio uh, is going to be used for future broadcast on ABC Radio National um, and also on Australian Museum channels. Um, The formal part of our conversation will go for about 45 minutes, and then we'll take some questions from the audience, so um, think of those and bank them up as we're chatting. And then following that, we encourage everyone to join us outside in Hinsey Hall. That's right. Okay, I knew I was going to forget that. Hinsey Hall uh, to continue the conversation that we're having over um, a drink and some food. Okay, so for those of you who are not so familiar, the Eureka Prizes, they are really known as the Oscars of science in Australia. And this afternoon we're presenting the second in a series of four Eureka Talks, uh, which celebrate the achievements of some of the nation's leading scientists, researchers and science communicators. In 2021, I was honoured to join the Eureka Prize alumni, sharing in a prize for science journalism as part of the team at the ABC behind the Radio National Series, Patient Zero podcast series. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Eureka Prize judge and director of the Australian Museum Research Institute, Professor Chris Helgen in the middle here. Chris Helgen is Chief Scientist at the Australia Museum. Prior to joining the AM in 2020, Chris was Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Adelaide. He has focused his research primarily on field work with living animals and research in museum collections to document the richness of life, understand global change and contribute to important problems in biomedicine. Originally from Minnesota, Chris gained his undergraduate degree in biology at Harvard University and his PhD in zoology as a Fulbright fellow at the University of Adelaide. From 2008 to 2017, he served as curator in charge of mammals at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington DC. Please give Chris a warm welcome. Our second guest isn't a Eureka Prize judge or a finalist yet, but he is the recipient of the 2021 Prime Minister's Prize for Science and one of the world's leading authorities on the evolution and emergence of infectious diseases. Professor Eddie Holmes is an NHMRC Leadership Fellow and Professor of Virology in the School of Medical Sciences at the University of Sydney. Eddie received his undergraduate degree from the University of London and his PhD from the University of Cambridge. He was elected a fellow of the of the Australian Academy of Science in 2015 and of the Royal Society in 2017. In 2020, Eddie won the New South Wales Pr- Premier's Prize for Science and Engineering. And in 2021, as I mentioned, he received the Prime Minister's Prize for Science. Please give Eddie a welcome. So today we're going to be diving into the complex and fascinating world of zoonosis and virus evolution. And I really couldn't think of of two better people to guide us along. Um, We are, of course, going to dig into what needs to be done to prevent the next pandemic. But I think the question we first have to ask is how did we get here? Eddie, this is a question that you have been thinking about and researching for a long time. And in the context of COVID-19 is something you first began to consider in 2014 when you visited a live animal market in China. Can you tell us about that trip and what you saw?
2: Yeah, hi everyone. Um, so I've had a long-standing collaboration with a researcher in China called Zhong Zhang. And what we've done over sort of 10, 12 years now is trying to understand the diversity of viruses in animals in nature and how those viruses jump between those animals and very occasionally jump into humans. And so across China, we had a variety of study sites to look at, and one of them happened to be in the city of Wuhan, okay? Um, and Wuhan is this massive mega... It's like 11 million people, um, lots of high-rise buildings. It's on the Yansi River, but it's actually very close to kind of wildlife, okay? So it's... it's very very defined boundary between the city and the rural areas and it's kind of wet little wetlands and marshes there so it's a very interesting area to look at biodiversity and what, what viruses might emerge there and so um in 2014 our, i i've made a number of trips were having. in 2014 we went we went there to looking at places we might try and sample viruses and animals and one place we went to is, is now a very very famous seafood market or called a seafood market called Hawana Market and if you actually see behind you there are two photographs and I'm sorry these are my photographs they're not very good if I'd have known how famous they'd be I'd do a better <laughs> job at taking <laughs> photographs but they're from my iPhone at the time and they're just two photographs of this, this, this and it's called a seafood market but it really isn't a seafood market um, just very briefly it's, like, it's about the size of two soccer fields so it's an indoor covered market and there are lots of kind of walkways and, and kind of, you know, little mini rows you can kind of uh, walk on and, and carts go between these as well and it's full of animals. It's full of things like um, there's fish, as you might expect, because it's, it's a fish market. There's snakes, there, there's reptiles, there's birds, and there's also mammals, OK? And what I was most struck by... I've been to a number of markets around the world. What I was most struck by were that there were, there were wild, there was wild mammals in there, things like raccoon dogs and muskrats and um, civets. With, I am not civet cats, so I didn't see them then, but they're, they're there as well. So, it was this amazing, almost like a mini zoo of, of, of um, animals there. And we talked about, and I, I remember discussing, when I went to the market, and this is in October 2014, saying to these people, we, we should sample this, this market. It's just amazing. This is where diseases could start, OK? Because you have animals stacked on top of each other, conditions are not very good, there's lots of people. It's exact, it's like a kind of petri dish, OK? It's kind of exactly the environment you want for a, for a virus to emerge. This photograph, um, the photographs you're seeing now, this thing, these are these are raccoon dogs at the top there. These are um like dog-like species. And below there, in that cage, there, there's a duck, and you can see the photograph there. Um and they actually decided not, interestingly, they decided not to sample at the market, in fact. We, had, we discussed, they thought a better place to sample was Wuhan Central Hospital. And interestingly, the first cases of human COVID-19 were actually in Wuhan Central Hospital. So they, they kind of almost got the right location. Um, but it's a complete chance we went to this market. And now it's become a very famous place.
0: Yeah, and the raccoon dogs we just saw there have been associated with the emergence of SARS-CoV-1, known simply as SARS, and now potentially yeah. implicated in, in COVID as well as SARS-CoV-2. Did it surprise you to see the animals being sold? And was that... Concern kind of shared by Chinese authorities or health officials, given yeah. that it had been linked to SARS-CoV-1.
2: They, they took me there, and I remember them saying, look at this place. It really is like an accident waiting to happen. And it was an accident waiting to happen. And it, sadly, it happened. Um, with the raccoon dog, if you see my, my raccoon dog photographs, they're particularly bad because I was taking them quite furtively. Because I, Mm -hmm. I, I, my phone like like holding next to my chest because I knew that they really shouldn't be there, Mm -hmm. and I I was and this I was concerned. I was kind of fascinated by it, and I'd say to them at the time, "This is this is strange," Um, because as you say, raccoon dogs were involved in in the emergence of SARS one, the end of two thousand two, and that was in a live animal market in Guangdong province in the south of China. Wuhan is more central eastern China. Um, and, and now, of course, we know that they, they are possibly... They're not proven to be, but they are possibly this famous intermediate host for the virus has uh, passed through to get to humans. So I was certainly um, certainly concerned, yeah. Mm.
0: OK, let's, let's zoom out for a moment from China and from COVID and talk more broadly about zoonotic diseases. So, Chris, can you tell us what exactly is a zoonotic disease and how do we know when we see one? <clears throat>
1: Sure, it's pretty straightforward. A zoonosis or zoonotic disease is basically uh, a pathogen, a disease of some kind that uh, spreads from animals into humans, into humanity. And um, there are uh, something like 1,400 known uh, uh, pathogens of of humanity, I think, something like 60% of those are pretty firmly understood to have originally Come from animals, mm-hmm. so we we can think of zoonoses as things that immediately spread from an animal to a person, you know, sort of in real time, something that's emerging and a new emerging disease. But many of the most sort of notable human diseases of all time, you know, humanity's worst killers, uh, were at some point diseases that jumped from historically, from animals into people. And these are things like measles and smallpox. Um, the bubonic plague is an example. So many of these you know, really, really fundamentally important diseases in human history uh, have animal origins. These things are linked in part to the history of humanity interacting with animals. Domestication mm-hmm. is probably a very important feature of zoonosis through history. Uh, and now, one of the most important factors is environmental change. So the way that humans are changing the planet around us. Um, there, I, I study mammals. I'm a mammologist and I study wild mammals all over the world. Um, there's around 6,000 or so species of them. About half are rodents, uh, about a fifth of them are bats. And uh, it's rodents and bats that are particularly often important when we think about diseases that uh, spread into humanity. So there's a lots of species, thousands of species, most of which are pretty obscure. Mm -hmm. They live in places that we, uh, uh, often uh, people aren't living or not too many people are living. They Mm -hmm. live in sort of rainforest basins or areas that historically maybe haven't had a huge amount of human impact and haven't been near to urban centers. As the world changes, as populations grow and agriculture expands and the world gets warmer, many of these dynamics that have Uh, kept mammals in their sort of particular neighborhoods uh, away from big human population centers. Those things are changing. I think we've seen that really importantly in the emergence of these coronaviruses in the 21st century like like COVID-19. Um, but that gives us a little uh, idea. And, and another thing to mention is that, you know, uh, it's not just viruses as well. Uh, there's many different ways that diseases can spread. They can be bacterial. They can be fungal. They can be protozoan pathogens, little small organisms. Um, but there are uh, they all have their own biologies. Mm-hmm. They have their own natural histories. They have places where they are found in nature, things that they do for a living, And those things, as the world changes, are changing and bleeding into each other, and that's the source of some of our concern and some of our sort of new thinking about what we need to be ready for, what we need to be aware of Mm -hmm. as scientists and as the public.
0: One of the things I found really shocking in first learning about zoonotic diseases was actually just how often humans are exposed to these viruses. The spillover doesn't necessarily happen all the time, but the exposure is there. Eddie, can you talk a little bit about that, <coughs> how we're constantly yeah. really actually rubbing up against this, and how we know as well?
2: Yeah, so um, absolutely. It's, it's very, very common. So the market, the a market in Wuhan, for example, that's the end of a very long wildlife trade. OK, and lots of species, and it's not just China, it's not just Asia, it's all over the world. Lots, lots of wildlife species now are, uh, are, 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 are sold, they're sold for fur, they're sold for, for meat. And they're brought together and they're kind of crowded together and viruses can pass between them. And the people who handle those wildlife in that wildlife trade, if you test them, they have antibodies. So their immune system has seen one of these exotic viruses. That happens all the time. They've done that, they've sampled market traders. So during SARS-1, they sampled market traders in Guangdong province in China. And quite a lot, I've forgotten the exact number now, but a percentage of them had already been exposed to bat coronaviruses, it's there. There was recently a, a study looking at um, people in, in Myanmar, in Asia, so it's a country that borders southern China. And in rural Myanmar, I think it was like 13%, 13% of people in rural Myanmar have been exposed to a bat coronavirus. Okay? So people are exposed all the time. Now, luckily, 99.99% of those occasions, nothing happens. Okay? The person doesn't know they're infected. They may get a very mild illness, but nothing, nothing untoward happens. Very occasionally, they get a, an overt illness, they shed virus, and they pass it to someone else. Very, very occasionally, the second person passes it to a third person and away we go, and we start to have an outbreak. Mm-hmm. And the thing why, why the Wuhan outbreak got going, unlike 99.9% of everything else, was it happened in a very big city in China, where there's lots and lots of people very close together. So a virus had lots of opportunities to spread, okay? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're exposed on, a, on, a, on an absolutely daily basis. And I, th- I mean, I, estimate, I think the estimated, I think about 60,000 exposures a year to bat coronaviruses, okay? So so each time we're rolling the dice, okay, And eventually the number will come up.
0: Chris, you mentioned bats and rodents. I want to talk about bats for a little bit. Um, We know in infectious disease ecology all viruses have a natural reservoir or a host in which they naturally live and reproduce. What makes a good viral host, and and why are bats, um, you know, tend to carry a lot of viruses?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, and certainly bats as we've come to know more about emerging zoonotic diseases, bats have really risen to the top of the mm-hmm. list uh, in terms of the species that we uh, get repeatedly identified as really important in these types of modern outbreaks. Sometimes uh, we know that pretty uh, definitively, um, that uh, you know, there's various ways that uh, virological detectives like Eddie will you know be able to trace the origin of, of, a, of a modern zoonosis, mostly what we do is basically look at the uh, nucleic acid of the disease, or the virus, and uh, and sort of trace back its family tree and what you might see is that uh, a virus that has jumped into humanity, all of its close neighbors and all of its close relatives are mapping out to viruses that are found in bats, for example. So when we look at things like Ebola or Marburg, some of those types of viruses, or various coronaviruses, and many others besides, bats are often ending up as the really important set of species that seem to be the natural place where these viruses are found. Um, all species of mammals will harbor various types of viruses. Um, every species, like ourselves, of the, those, those six or 7,000 mammals on the planet, have their own biologies and their own set of species uh, of of viruses that will be part of their biology. And it may be that they have an evolutionary history of interaction with various viruses that makes them basically not uh, pathogenic, they're not causing a problem, they're coexisting with various mammals as hosts. Now I think both rodents, and now we're talking about bats, they are very speciose. There's lots of different species, they're very diverse. Um, They also, sometimes biologically, they they sort of live on top of each other. Bats have very specific places where they roost, or they they basically hide out during the day, coming out at night. Sometimes that's in caves, sometimes that's in hollow trees. Each species has its own sort of uh, special hideout. And some of those species, from diverse groups of families, there's many different kinds of bats, uh, they will all, say, live in the same cave together maybe a dozen or even 20 species living together with very different evolutionary histories, tens of millions of years apart. But they occupy almost like bat cities, almost like bat urban areas, all over the world, these types of cave systems. Uh, And so they have these long periods of of history, millions of years of overlap in these caves where, uh, and also these are, uh, another thing to think about, bats are really mobile animals. So being flighted, they can you know, cover a lot of ground. They can sometimes travel long distances. And I think what's happening biologically is over deep scales of time, bats are covering a lot of distance. They're being exposed to a lot of types of viruses. They're bringing them back into these bat urban centers of caves where dozens of species are living together. And bats become kind of almost like this evolutionary brewing pot for you know, viral diversity. And that's per- certainly one of the explanations, I think, for why we see such a, an amazing diversity of viruses in bats, uh, but also why we see bats in particular, perhaps more than most mammals, are really good at living alongside these viruses because they have these, de- these deep histories of that interaction. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the puzzle.
2: Let, so I was say, there's also some growing evidence that the immune system of bats, so you know, the genes they... they we, we all use as, as mammals to fight infections like viruses. There's growing evidence that the bad immune system is a bit different than other mammals, and it has some components that enable them to tolerate viruses that, without causing disease, which other animals can't do. And some people say maybe it's because there's some high body temperatures with, with the, because of flight have led to an, an evolutionary change in their immune system that allows them to tolerate these viruses. That's not, not quite proven, but it does appear that their immune system is different. Now, actually, well, that's a kind of bad thing for disease emergence, if we understand why bats can do that, that actually may be very powerful in understanding how immune systems work and can we use the information in some way to, to fight off infections ourselves. So there's a lot to learn about bat biology, actually. There's a lot of work being done on that now.
0: Mm. And you mentioned earlier this week when we were chatting that you feel like bats have been so vilified, particularly since COVID. What?
2: Yeah, I, I do. I think, I think, and I think bats have got a very... In fact, I, I blame Bram Stoker, actually. I think Dracula started the whole thing. But um, bats have got a very bad name. And it's very unfair because the, the species responsible for emergencies is humans, right? It's the way we interact with the wildlife. That's, that's entirely our fault. Not The bats have carried this virus. have happened for millennia. And, of course, we mustn't forget that bats are absolutely key pollinators. They're part of our ecosystem. If we, Bats do far more good than harm, OK? And, unfortunately, bats have become kind of public enemy number one in some respect. And also because, I mean, even around Sydney here, there are big bat, bat roosts. And local councils are very, you know, a lot of pressure on them to build houses in the areas where these bat roosts are. And that leads to a lot of people pressuring councils about, about bat colonies. Should they be there? Should they not be there? But um, we and we have to we have to preserve bats. They're absolutely critical species. It's far better they're around than they're not around.
1: I'd like to just add to that mm-hmm. because I do think uh, bats are important to me as a scientist. I love bats. Uh, I study them in many different ways, and they have gotten a bad rap. Um, they are much more. They do much more good than harm. It's pollination services. Yep. It's seed dispersal services. Forests all over the world wouldn't flourish naturally in the way that they do without. The ecosystem services that bats provide, even more to the point, the grand majority of bats are insect feeders. So they're not the pollinators, they're not the seed dispersers, and they eat an incredible amount of biomass in all kind of warm habitats all over the globe every single night. So that's crop pests, that's animals like small insects that spread disease like mosquitoes. All over the world, these bats are taking this incredible role in removing uh, insects out of the ecosystem, which really does a lot of good to humanity in places where bats die out or are removed from ecosystems. One thing you see is uh, a real, for example, one, just one example, an increase in the need to uh, put a lot of um, chemicals into the environment to control insects, pesticides and the like, with a lot of other environmental impacts. So bats have these incredible natural services, uh, and it's only when we start to really disrupt these historical situations where bats are living in caves that perhaps people haven't generally been disturbing or or, or uh, visiting. It's only in those circumstances that we come into the modern peril of, of uh, emerging diseases.
0: Mm. So I want to talk about that, this disruption of habitats. We know that the number of zoonotic diseases is increasing. It's estimated that about three quarters of all new infectious diseases emerge in this way. I'd love if you could both talk me through some of the reasons why that's happening, why they're kind of increasing more and what are the factors that contribute to that. Eddie, I might start with you.
2: Yeah, so the the number one reason is the changing relationship between humans and the natural world, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, every disease emergent event that I can think of at some point has... It's due to how humans interact with nature. So HIV, for example, which emerged, we think, in Africa in the early 20th century, that was almost certainly to the logging trade. So people logging, going logging into deeper and deeper forests in West Africa, encountering chimpanzees, butchering them for food because they they couldn't get any other sort of food, and probably cutting themselves during butchering and getting infected. But logging was a driver. So deforestation, mega cities, global travel, all those things, so we're interacting more with the wildlife and we're interacting more with each other. And, all the, and that is and, it's, and a tremendous desire for meat as well, okay, for, for human food. Um, that has also inter- changed our interaction with animals. So that is the animal-human interface. That's the key disease emergence that really is. And that's got more and more porous as time's gone on. And we are a much more connected species now. And you saw, you saw how quickly COVID-19 had moved around the world. It means it's frighteningly fast. And that is, that's only going to increase again. So that's, to me, they're, they're the major
1: reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. And Chris, can you talk a little bit about how climate change is also exacerbating this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've, on top of all of what Eddie's just mentioned, this uh, nexus between humanity and environment that becomes more porous, uh, changing climate, a warming world, makes it more porous. What changing climates do is they disrupt of environmental regimes that have maybe been stable for a very long time. Um, Certain, uh, again, coming back to viruses or or pathogens in general having their own natural histories, having their own biologies, you know, scientists, we have to figure out, you know, which which virus lives in and which bat, which lives in which cave, which is visited for what purposes. There's these complex set of, of interactions, but as we work those things out, we can start to understand you know, what is the driving force and start to understand how those particular things are changing, those factors and those interactions that lead to that porosity or porousness. So uh, the climate change, uh, you know, in a warming world, for example, uh, a particular bat might have its distribution start to shift. If uh, China becomes uh, warmer at higher latitudes, maybe that bat starts to shift into more kind of urban areas or you know, insects that can spread disease or be vectors of many of mm. these important, disease, important pathogens, um, they may sp- respond very clearly in different ways, uh, just like a malarial mosquito will or another type of, of bug. So um, species are, are very finely attuned to the climatic conditions around the world. As those shift, the, there's a lot of disruption between interactions, and that includes the way that they interact with us. So climate change will turn up the dial. It'll turn up the gain on sort of the speed of these new uh, and sort of somewhat unpredictable interactions uh, that are different from what nature has been like in the past, yeah. turn up the gain on that on that acceleration.
2: So for Australia, in the, in the immediate future, as Chris mentioned, we will see a rise in mosquito-borne infections, absolutely. Because mosquitoes, they don't like the cold weather. And as, as things get warmer, that allows them to survive winters more than the, that they, they say, couldn't do in the past. And we'll see mosquito zones going further and further south into Australia. So we'll see more dengue. Dengue at the moment is pr- as, uh, sporadically occurs in northern Queensland. That will start to come down the east coast. We'll see that. We're already seeing more Murray Valley encephalitis. That's another viral infection. We're seeing for the first time Japanese encephalitis all the way down in, in Melbourne and, Vic- and other parts of Victoria. That will happen more. And there'll be others too. So you can absolutely bet you will you know, good money that that's going to happen more absolutely. Same with tick-borne, tick-borne and other types yeah. of
1: diseases. So, as the climate shifts, those envelopes of interaction and environment and, and adaptation shift, species move around, and uh, there's more there's more uh, there's more potential for jumping of different types of of diseases between species.
0: And wildlife trade is obviously a key piece of this puzzle as well. Eddie, you've seen the illegal trade of wildlife firsthand. What's the situation today in terms of are we still doing <coughs> that around the world? Is the problem getting better? Is it getting worse?
2: Um, I don't think it's getting much better. Um, sadly, I don't think the lessons from COVID have been learned, to be honest with you. So in China, and I don't and I want to focus on China, pick on China, because China's not the only country doing that. But COVID started there, so it's kind of like the obvious one to discuss. But so in China, that the, these ant- these live animal markets or wet markets are sometimes called... They're actually officially closed at the moment. But the wildlife breeding farms... So when, when you go to these animal markets, you see these these, animal, these mammals there. Sometimes they're wild caught, but more often than they're not, they're, they're farm bred. So these raccoon dogs are actually farmed. They're wildlife, but they're farmed in, in large you know, gatherer uh, areas. And in Shandong province in northeastern China, that's the kind of raccoon dog breed, farm breeding area. So those farms are still in operation, they're still there, and the animals are sick. At the moment, we've, we've had a big outbreak of Avon influenza, h 5 8 influenza, that's the next virus to worry about, I don't want to scare people, but that's the next kind of one to be concerned about. That virus has already got into raccoon dogs in China, okay, and in mink as well, in, in Spain and some other countries. Um, so the, the farms are there, and in other countries, the, the, wild, the, the wildlife markets are open, and the wildlife trade is there. I had a friend of mine who was in Indonesia just recently, and they reported that the, 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 this, these animal farms are there, the live markets selling mammals are there, and it's all operational. And every time we, they're there, the dice is being rolled. Okay, every single time. And it's a, ma- it's a matter of time. It could, be, it could be 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, a week next Tuesday, we, we just don't know. Okay? But the critical thing is we have, you know, we, we have to be prepared for this now and make changes.
0: You mentioned a little bit earlier, Eddie, about the fact that these spillover events are happening. It's it's rare that it will then spill into a pandemic. Um, and you mentioned previously that SARS-CoV-2 really only became a pandemic virus because it spilled over in Wuhan. Can you just talk a little bit about how important it is where a spillover event happens yeah. um, and how much comes down to, I guess, a bit of chance or luck?
2: Yeah, so and, and it's, there's always a chance element to it. And I'll, I'll give you two examples. So before SARS-2 came along, the one I think, with the, the outbreak that we most heard about and were concerned about was Ebola. And Ebola, there was a big outbreak of Ebola in, in central West Africa, uh, around the countries of Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia from 2013, 2016. And Ebola is always in our consciousness as being very bad because it is so, the case fatality rate is so high. I mean, it's over 50% of people die of Ebola, so it's a horrendous disease. Now, normally, Ebola's been around since the late 1970s, we've known about and normally Ebola outbreaks are pretty small, so you maybe get 10 people. The highest ever was before this big one was about 400, OK? This time, what happened for the first time is this virus emerged in a rural part of, of Guinea, but because they were kind of refugee, refugee areas, the people were flown... the patients were flown out into the capital cities for treatment. So very, very quickly, it went from a rural area to the urban area for the first time. And the rural area, they lost the chain of transmission. It just went underground, and it, it, it made this massive outbreak. So being in that city environment just drove it. Now, normally, if a virus evolves in a rural area, the num- so for any virus, to spread, it requires susceptible hosts around it, so the people that it can infect, OK? You've all heard about the famous R number during, during Norman Swan's Chronoclass had R numbers every, every day. You know, and the higher the R number, the worse things get. So if you have a very small population of people, the R cannot get very high. The, more, the bigger the population of, of hosts, and the more dense it is, the higher that number can get and the easier it is to spread. So a coronavirus emerging in a, in a remote part of rural China is not going to meet that many people. And more often than not, it's going to burn itself out. A coronavirus emerging in a wet market in a city 11 million people, full of high-rises, That's very dense. It's got, it can meet more and more people. R is going to increase and it's going to start to spread. And as it starts to spread, it's going to adapt and become a fully you know, infectious human pathogen. So the virus that first emerged in Wuhan in late 2019 wasn't that good a human virus. Okay? The virus we have now is much better adapted, it's much, much, 1,000, 10,000 times more infectious. But the one that emerged was good enough to get going in that big, dense population, it very quickly adapted, because it could easily do that in that, in that huge population of hosts to, to make it a really good, efficient human virus.
0: While we're on the origins of COVID, I want to stay there for a little bit, just so you can discuss something, you know, non-controversial, very straightforward. <laughs> um, why is it so difficult to find the origin. And Eddie, tell us about some of the research you did at the end in terms of tracing the virus back to the market in in 2019.
2: Yeah, thanks for that, Olivia. It's a completely (laughs) non-controversial question, as you say. Um, So I think the reason why it's been so difficult to do this is a number of mistakes were made very early on in the outbreak investigation. And and also, and I, and I, I'm going to say this very carefully because I I don't want to kind of point fingers. But um, unfortunately, in China at the moment, information is very tightly controlled. Okay, and so the Chinese government, for better or worse, like to control. Actually, for worse, right? They, They like to they like to control the message, and so it's very hard to get to the bottom of this, what has really happened, because data is not being shared. In a very open and free manner. This is really hindering. It's the worst thing you can do to investigate where something came from. Now, very early on, what happened was so on December the 31st, they officially announced there was an outbreak in Wuhan associated with the market. They closed the market, and the next day, they sent the investigators in to, to swab the market. So they came in and they swabbed the patients, they swabbed surfaces, drains, door handles. Those cages I photographed you saw earlier, they saw those those very cages, those very kind of places, the gutters. The problem was the animals had been moved out. The day before they came in, the the wildlife was removed from the market. And for for almost three years, the, the authorities denied there was any wildlife there, but there was obviously wildlife there. Now, because they were moved out, the first thing they should have done is gone back and traced exactly where those wildlife came from, Trace follow the animals. I always say, trace it back, see who supplied them, and then that may have given given the origin. They didn't do that, okay. Um, and now it's just too late. Now it's three and a half years on. The virus in that raccoon dog, or civet, or bamboo, or whatever it was, would have burned through that. It's, it's gone now, so we can't find it now. We can't find it. So that combined with this, with the, with this, you know, the, the politics in China. This research lab that many people have argued about—all that's made it extremely murky. And now, sadly, the whole thing has become a political football, and the science has gone. Now it's about U.S. and China basically shouting at each other. Mm. And science has lost. As someone very famously said, "When if you mix science and politics, you get politics." Right. And so this is this is the problem. So, so science now has no chance of doing this.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. It's obviously become a very controversial, politicised debate and discussion. Chris, in your perspective, how how does that kind of cloud the efforts of a scientific inquiry, and should it simply be a scientific question?
1: Well, it clouds it as Eddie's pointed out in in uh, in many different ways. It just raises the temperature of any effort to try to, um, you know, really in a clear-eyed way. You know, get to the underlying biology or the underlying um, uh, sort of ecology of, of nature and humanity that has, you know, created this situation that has, you know, in so many ways for several years brought society to its knees. You know, this huge economic and uh, health impact on the world. So, um, I think, you know, when we think about it for for just a few seconds understanding how important it is that scientists are able to work as unencumbered as possible to try to get to the fundamental answers about you know, where does this come from? Why? Because we're gonna be armed to understand not just what happened, but you know, when those dice are rolled again and they're rolled again every day, that we're better armed to sort of really understand you know, what might be next, what are the combinations and the interactions that put us most at risk. So um, yeah, the temperature has turned way up, especially in the United States right now. uh, And you only have to uh, sort of log on to social media for a little while to find this just raging. Uh, And Eddie's been in the middle of a lot of that. Um, But uh, yeah, the fact that it it, uh, uh, involves the entirety of the globe has had so many impacts on all of us. I mean, just think back to four years ago Everyone in this room we'd never heard of this particular pandemic you know, we'd never and now all of us have our own stories, our own lived experience of you know multiple infections, the ways our families have been interra- have, have been affected by it, the way it's affected our our travel and our jobs and our finances and so um, these things are very real now to all to everyone, and uh, we need to try to dial down the temperature a bit, um, not just see it as uh, this stoush between big superpowers or pointing fingers or pointing blame. We really want to get to the facts. Um, that will be hard. It's harder as each month passes from the original event, um, but there are uh, various ways that we can... Uh, I think we can go on and talk about uh, how we can better be armed with science for understanding what we might be in for in the future.
0: Yes, let's let's get to that. Just before we do... Um Eddie, you mentioned, you know, that it's been difficult because of the lack of access to information. Even if we had access to information, it would still be difficult to, to get to the source, right? If we think <coughs> about the yeah. original SARS virus, that took years and years. It did
2: take, yeah. So it took um, two years to find that, that bats were... Uh, had a virus close, like, close to SARS-1. And the exact origin of SARS is still not quite worked out. It took 10 years to work out that chimpanzees had a virus that was very like H- the HIV virus that causes AIDS. And for lots of viruses, we have no idea where they come from. I mean, in fact, the majority of cases, we have no idea where the virus came from. A really good example is hepatitis C virus that infects something like 90 million people globally, a huge thing. I mean, lots of people eat liver transplants because of liver cancer caused by hep C virus. We have no idea where, where that virus comes from. Measles, Chris mentioned earlier on, that's, we're not sure. Smallpox, one of the, the biggest killers ever in human history. The only virus we've ever eradicated in humans by vaccination. We have no idea where that's from. Its closest relative is a virus found in an African gerbil. But I can pretty much tell you it's not from African gerbils, right? So, but where it's from, we have no idea. And so, in fact, finding the real course of events, you know, the, the patient zero story is actually far, um, far, it's very rare, in fact.
0: For scientists like yourself, the pandemic did not come as a surprise. There were warning signals for a long time. Eddie, you've spoken about those. But I think one one kind of more surprising element of it was that it wasn't um, influenza, which it had been discussed for a long time as that was going to be the next pandemic. Um, given that SARS-CoV-1 was coronavirus, why did that seem to, or at least in my perception, it seemed to catch people off guard that they they weren't anticipating a coronavirus? Why do you think that is that we didn't see a coronavirus
2: coming? So... That is actually a really good question. I think one of the things we, we, we've learned, we have learned from the pandemic and will be actioned, is that we need a broader set of pandemic plans. So most countries globally had a plan of action. You may, this may surprise you, but there was a plan before something like this took place that, that could be actioned. And I, m- I remember being in the UK some years ago, and we were discussing the UK pandemic plan, and every plan globally was based on influenza, because influenza was thought to be the most likely cause of the next big pandemic. Now, in influenza, the key thing is, you never eliminate the virus. You only ever suppress it by, by vaccination, okay? So the idea that we'd eliminate it was never on the cards. So in most countries globally, including Australia, when COVID came along, the idea was to suppress it, not to get down to zero cases, but just to try and just stop its transmission to high levels. The only except There's a couple of exceptions to that, but most famously New Zealand, who decided not to follow the flu plan, but to think back to the basic science, and go credit to them, back to the basic science, could the virus be eliminated? Of course, like us, they, have their, they, have, they can close their borders, they're quite isolated. They did that, and they eliminated the virus. Now, we did it here for a while, but that was by accident. We didn't mean to do that. We kind of got lucky in our suppression strategy. So a key thing going forward is we can't just have the flu plan rolled out again because viruses behave in different ways. And if there is a chance to eliminate it, because transmission is not so great in, in COVID as it was in flu, maybe an elimination strategy would, would be the better place to go. So um, I'm, I'm pretty sure we've learned that particular lesson.
0: Chris, were you surprised when it was a coronavirus, not an influenza
1: virus? No, I wasn't surprised, and that's because we... have seen several other examples. We've seen SARS-1, we've seen a a virus called MERS as an emerging uh, disease, it's a coronavirus. And so, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of people on record saying that, you know, one of the next big pandemics is probably going to be a coronavirus. It's a sign of how little we know, though, about virology and about nature in general, that, you know, these previous coronavirus um, uh, possible pandemics that sort of got their start and have been you know, cut off or realized you know, there's enough information to understand what they are or enough lucky circumstances that they haven't spread uh, like COVID-19 did. Um, I think that you know, those are 21st century examples, really. They're recent history. Uh, and uh, like Eddie pointed out earlier, they're probably types of things that through all of human history, you know, been bubbling around and affecting people, but it's just that right set of dice-throwing circumstances. Whether they hit an urban area, whether they hit a wet market with lots of different species interacting, you know, that they find that right set of circumstances. We're giving coronaviruses that same set of good circumstances. Still, the wildlife trade and trafficking is happening. The climate's warming. Um, there's a lot of urban areas that are, you know, near areas of high biodiversity. Um, So we can confidently say that won't be the last coronavirus pandemic that we're likely to see in the years ahead as well, I'd say.
0: A um, positive note to end on. (laughs) (laughs) I will um, ask you to start having a think about some questions you might want to put to Chris and Eddie, but just before I do that, so in thinking about stopping the next pandemic. I'd love to get both of your perspectives on what you think is the single most important step right now to stop that happening.
2: OK, I'll give you three, if I can, <laughs> briefly. Two I think are doable. One won't happen. The two that are doable, I do think we need to try and make these universal vaccines that people talk about. So um, at the moment, for, for influenza viruses, coronaviruses, the vaccines are strain specific. So we have to kind of change them as a the new strain. A lot of research now underway to make virus, to make vaccines that will recognise a broad set of viral strains. So all the strains of COVID, all the strains, and they will be amazing. So if they're in our freezer before, if, if, if something comes out, we can vaccinate with those. That would be a huge thing. Second, personally, I think the live animal trade should be stopped right completely. I think it's just too risky, and I, and, and I can't see the benefit. Now, obviously, that that affects people, indigenous people in various in various countries, with their livelihood. So. If it's not stopped, at least better regulated, OK? And, and, animal, and testing for viruses on a, on a really regular basis, that's critical. The biggest thing, which I think, and I'll be controversial here, that we'll do, would do would actually stop it all, well, not all, but really help a lot, would be if we didn't eat meat, actually. I think consumption of meat is the number one thing for climate change and for um, these emergence. It's a really big thing, right? And I hate to say it, but it really is. And that, I think, would have a major effect on, on the number of viruses we're exposed to.
1: And that, that reliance on meat has to do with land clearing. Yep. Land has clearing. has to do with uh, exactly. wildlife trade. Yep. It has to do with all these types yep. of things.
2: Fa- I, mean, I mean, factory farming too. So you know, even in, in, in other you know, in countries like Australia, we have um, the pig industry is continually, in the US, continually a, th- a threat of, for influenza viruses and other viruses too. And these animals are kept in huge numbers, OK? And uh, foot and mouth, something like that would, would wipe out that industry very, very easily. So, our reliant on, on meat, which is getting bigger... I mean, also, in, in terms of driving climate change, right? I mean, it's just amazing that the, the beef industry particularly, the effect that has on, on climate change is absolutely enormous. So, if we are going to eat meat, we should try and eat, eat chicken, or maybe insects eventually, right? But this really... Is, I mean, climate change is, is the existential threat we're, we're facing as a species, right? It really is. And what we've seen with COVID, I hate to say it, but will be a walk in the park compared to what happens with climate change, right? Sorry, Saturday afternoon. Sorry, I did everyone. But, but, you know, and, and we have to be really, we, we have to get real with this. We really do have to. We've just gone through the hottest days on record on this planet in the last few days. And all this is going to feed into these complex interactions, including disease emergence. And our diet is a small part of that. You know, and it's something that we can do as a species, though. But I don't hold up much hope for it to ever be done.
1: Chris? Olivia, I'll point to two things. So one is is the same as Eddie's. I think uh, we need to, you know, again, it's that dice roll. We need to uh, reduce the chance that uh, viruses have this chance to um, find the right biological conditions to make this jump. So that really does... Uh, mean we need to eliminate these wet markets, uh, these types of markets. It's not just in China. These are things all around the world, and people are reliant on them in local economies, so there needs to be a lot of things considered. Uh, It's really predictable uh, what areas... We we know because we know quite a bit about life on Earth. We're still learning a lot. But we know kind of where life is at its richest and where the most species of animals and plants uh, exist, and that's generally in the tropics. It's in places like Central, and. West over to East Africa, it's like in the tropics of Latin America, the Amazon in particular. It's places like um, Southeast Asia, the corners of India, China, and Southeast Asia coming together, New Guinea. There's a handful of places. And so we know that's where life is at its richest and that's where um, we might see uh, the most potential of viral diversity you know, because there's so much natural diversity there. And these are many of the places where um, local communities, or even up to large, you know, urban centers, are reliant on bushmeat trade, wildlife markets. These types of interactions, where lots of species come together in unnatural ways, so uh, regulating that better or getting rid of it would be really important to global humanity. The other aspect is being forewarned is is forearmed, you know, uh, so we know so little about these viruses that you know, we tend to only learn about them once they jump into people and uh, start causing havoc. So we don't really know. We didn't know Ebola before it was a pathogen. We didn't know COVID-19. Uh, we didn't, science didn't have it in its annals and its records. And so what I do here at this museum, as I'm interested in biodiversity science, we're interested to know how many species of fish or butterflies or ticks or mammals are there on the planet and for hundreds of years, we've delved into environments all over the world to try to answer those questions like scientific detectives. It's only in the last century, and mainly more recently, with DNA and RNA, that we've had the chance to actually explore and document and take stock inventory of the viral diversity in the world. We might estimate that there is a couple million viruses of, animal, of, of mammals and birds, for example, uh, a, a, a gross estimate, uh, an estimation, but uh, there are many millions of species that we've already described of, of, of biodiversity on this planet. And if we add to the task, to inventory, all those viruses, you know, if we know what they are, if we have a record of them, if we've named and identified and understood some of their biology before they make this cross, so that we can interrogate them, think about which ones are risky, understand which ones are we're likely never to see, or which ones are you know going to appear in wuhan that would be smart that would also it would be very expensive it would take a lot of scientific effort but it would be much less expensive than going through the global paralysis that we've seen from a single pandemic like covid 19. so i think that we should scientifically get ready to do this detective work to understand an inventory the potential pathogens that are out there so that every single time they're not catching us off guard.
0: Mm. Costly, but less costly than the next pandemic. A
1: lot of work, but worth it.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much. All right, we are just over four o'clock, so we will wrap up. Uh, I'd firstly like to thank our fantastic panelists today for such an interesting discussion, Professor Eddie Holmes and Professor Chris Helgen. Please give them a round of applause. The next installment in the Eureka Talk series is on Saturday the 12th of August and is hosted by my distinguished colleague Robin Williams. Science in the Age of Fake News tracks the trials of science communication in an era fraught with misinformation and disinformation. It also explores the potential impact of artificial intelligence on research and discovery. Robin will be joined by UNSW's head of AI, Professor Toby Walsh, alongside science journalist Diane Lewis. It's a great place to pick up where we have left off today. Uh, And if you're interested, you can find out more online on the Australia Museum website. Thank you again for coming along today and we hope to catch you outside. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.